please turn to 1st Corinthians chapter 13. And I'm going to read the last verse of the chapter by way of introduction and then we'll open in prayer. And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three, but the greatest of these is charity. Let's ask for the Lord's help. <coughs> Heavenly Father, thank you that we can be here tonight. Thank you for bringing us all here safely. We uh, pray that this uh, message would um, be a blessing and a challenge to all who have made it here tonight. I pray that you would help me, uh, give me uh, exactly your words to say. May they not be my words, but your words. Uh, help me to say only that which you'd have me to say. And may this be a clearly understood message that can encourage us, but also uh, greatly challenge us, Lord. Let's pray for a blessing on every aspect of this <coughs> message in your name. Amen. Uh, not too long into my... Uh, basic training adventures with the army before we go to bed they'd line us up and get us to yell out something which was known as our contract with Australia and I will not bore you with the entire thing however it starts off with I am an Australian soldier an expert in close combat now um, as I was preparing this message and as I elaborate more you'll hopefully see where I'm going is anyone truly an expert at anything like we hear this word tossed around a lot someone is a martial arts expert someone is an academic expert even in researching this message I came across a web page by someone who was a Christianity expert um, an animal expert an academic expert there are lots of different experts and what is an expert by definition someone who has a great deal of knowledge or special skill in a particular area so several days into uh, something where I wasn't sure what I was getting into I'm yelling out the words I am an expert in close combat and a little part of me goes is it is it true am I there yet and then the longer the course went and the more I learnt, I thought perhaps yes this is it this is what it feels like to be an expert and then we would go out the next day and I realized that I was not in fact an expert I still had much to learn and then I finished the course and thought, well, that, was, that wasn't too bad. Four weeks to become an expert. I'm on my way. And then I went and did my post-qualification courses and realized that I still was not yet an expert. And the more I learned, the more I realized I was still very, very far away from being what someone can call an expert. I wondered when it would actually come true. Because despite all the extensive training and drills, it's still something that requires a lot more dedication and years of practice before someone can say truly I am an expert in this area likewise yesterday I had my doctrinal examination which is the culmination of three years of very enjoyable and mentally stimulating college classes which um, and you know this was important to me that I do well and by God's grace I passed however you know I will not, if I ever write an online article, label myself as a Christianity expert because my three years have taught me that I really don't know anything at all. So, becoming an expert seems like this elusive 
uh, dream that some people spend their entire life trying to do. Serving different apprenticeships. For me, army and theologically. For others, it could be a trade of some kind. Some of these apprenticeships, we, we'd start them to become experts in our chosen field. However, if we get there, will we be satisfied? I discovered someone a little while ago who they are a mould expert and they know everything that there is to know about mould and I just, I'm sure they're right at parties. I wonder whether at any point they start to feel as though they've wasted their life because no one cares about mould like they do. Um, you know, it's commonly reported that Alexander the Great, when he got as far as he possibly could, apparently, legend has it, wept because he'd conquered all that there was to conquer and there was no one left to fight. I'm saying all this to share that there's one apprenticeship worth doing. And while it can be overwhelming because we're not going to complete it until we reach glory, it's one of the most joyful and profitable journeys that we can take. And the title of my message tonight is The Lifelong Apprenticeship. And that's what we're looking tonight, where we learn from the Master, Jesus, and God, and the Holy Spirit, the Godhead himself, how we all to love God and love our fellow man. And we're using chapter 13 as our text. It's commonly referred to as the greatest love chapter in not just the Bible, but in the history of literature. And in this chapter, Paul outlines all the aspects of love that we are to mark. Remember the context. Corinth were a gifted church. 1 Corinthians 1.7, so that you come in no gift, they were gifted. Their doctrine was even somewhat on point. 11 verse 2, he mentions, but I would have you know, uh, uh, that's not it. I'm, I remember doing that. I wrote it down wrong and I meant to fix it and I didn't. Anyway, there's a verse in there somewhere um, that talks about how they did, they practiced the ordinances which Paul had delivered unto them. They knew what they were supposed to do. So why weren't things going right? Because they did not have the right type of love. They were not living effectively and victoriously because why? Where was the love? Tonight, let us seek to unpack how we can masterfully serve our apprenticeship of love so that it is the motivation behind all that we do. Let us see how we can masterfully serve our apprenticeship of love so that it is the motivation behind all we do. We have three main points tonight. And we're going to try to get through the entire chapter. And so this will not be an in-depth study. I cannot do it justice, but I'm going to try to give us an understanding of what this chapter is saying. Our first point, we're talking about the essentialness of love. Read with me verse 1. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Uh, a couple of things first up remember the context the earlier chapters are all about spiritual gifts a gifted church bickering over who was better they all want to be parts of the body this is what this is about and tongues were also in abuse a very prominent gift some were making things up some were perhaps under demonic influence and the ones that probably legitimately had the gift of doing it with the wrong motive it was a shemozzle. So he starts with tongues. That's where he goes. It's important to remember that. But also have to remember that they had all the gifts, but the fighting and the competing was tearing them apart. I liken it to 
a Christmas at a dysfunctional rich family's house where all the presents under the tree are very, very elaborate, but there is no love in that household. And there is no joy on anyone's face as they open their expensive toys. I'm sure, like me, you would much rather have a Christmas with a poor family where there is heaps of love and fun and smiling and fellowship. The irony is that Corinth could have had both. They could have been a rich family with rich, happy family with great presence, but they blew it because of their behaviour. It's important to remember these things. Now, charity is used all throughout this chapter, and I'm going to be interchangeable with the words charity and love. It's not a direct translation, charity. The English word charity was chosen because they tried, well, it was a variety of reasons which I won't go into, but essentially they were trying to portray the best English word for agape, love which without going through all the different types of love there on the Bible, agape is the best one. It's the type of love that God has for us, the type of love that we should emulate. It is a faithful, committing love. It's an act of the will, a choice, an unconditional choice to love no matter what. This is agape love. So I'm going to talk about charity. I'm going to talk about just love and I'm going to talk about um, agape love. All the same thing in context tonight. Okay, so though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Without love, Paul is saying, speech is silenced. Okay, he goes to tongues here, as I've mentioned. Though I speak, this though is a hypothetical. He's essentially saying, if I could speak with all the tongues, the languages of men, and even if I could speak of the tongues of angels... He's saying, even if I had that, but I didn't have charity, I didn't have love, I'd be nothing. Now, he's either using a hyperbole and saying that, yes, he's, he's realising that I'm sure angels do talk to each other and they probably have a different language other than English or Greek or Aramaic. Perhaps he's, say, he's perhaps saying that or perhaps he's taking a dig at them for the ones who thought that their tongues were ecstatic utterances, heavenly languages. Either way, he's saying, if I could speak in every language in the world and out of the world, that's, um, what I'm saying is that it's not a sign that tongues were ecstatic utterances. It's a hyperbole. It's an example that he's giving and perhaps a sarcastic one. I become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. A brass here, it's a gong or a cymbal. And these words don't convey in English the horrible crashing noises that these instruments would give off. Now, Paul is mentioning them because in that day, the pagan ceremonies to Bacchus and several other of the pagan gods were accompanied by all sorts of ecstatic utterances, tongues, which the Christians were seeking to emulate, and also this type of crashing of symbols. It would have been very difficult to escape what Paul was saying. Conversely, these instruments are not eloquent. I remember watching a film with a fantastic soundtrack and I was watching the behind the scenes footage and it came to a part um, where the music reached a climax and then a gong sounded. And then the director piped up and said, yeah, I played that part um, because he just wanted to put, have a bit of a cameo in the film. So they brought him in and he hit the gong. The point is, is that anyone can play a gong. It's not an eloquent, eloquent instrument at all. You hit it and it's done. He's saying without love, all your eloquent speech is futile without 
agape love, without God's love driving us, our speech is silence. It doesn't matter what we say, if it's not driven by love, it's worthless. Speech is silence. But then he goes to another gift. He goes to prophecy and knowledge. Without love, speech is silenced and wisdom is foolish. Verse 2, And though I have all the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have no charity, I am nothing. Paul saying, you know, if I've got the gift of prophecy and I understand everything, he uses the word all, all mysteries, all knowledge. He's saying, if I knew everything about everything that there ever was to know, and if I had the faith to do miracles such as moving mountains, if I did that without love, I would profit nothing. My wisdom would be foolish. And we, we know examples of this. We won't go there. But in Matthew 10, Jesus mandates his disciples, he gives them power to do miracles. And Judas is amongst that group. It explicitly says that in Matthew 10. He would have gone out and would have done miracles in Jesus' name. And we know how much uh, love Judas had in his heart for God and for other people. It was worthless deep down. His actions meant nothing. Someone once said, a full head with an empty heart is worth nothing. Do we try to hide behind what we know, not what we do? And there are many people who they have, they have the smarts, but they don't have the love to convey the things that they know in a way that can draw others to the Lord. Without love, speech is silence, wisdom is foolish, and finally, even giving is selfish. Verse 3, And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Word he bestow, it's very interesting, it does not translate well in English. It literally, it means give away mouthful by mouthful. It's the idea of hungry people opening their mouths and some benevolent person who's far better off just giving them spoonful by spoonful out of a sense of duty rather than making sure that they've got more than enough. They're making sure they get the bare minimum. It's actually kind of where we get the word dole from today. It's a dole where people who don't work get just enough money to get by. But I guess they probably get more, but it's the idea that they're not um, being lavishly looked after with love. It's done out of a sense of duty rather than a sense of love. But God loves cheerful givers. Second Corinthians 9, 7 says, Don't give grudgingly or of necessity. God loves a cheerful giver. Our giving is to be motivated by love, not out of, oh, that's what I have to do. It doesn't profit much. And then, though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. We know of plenty of Islamic extremists who have given their bodies to be burned and I guarantee you they're in hell right now trying to figure out how they blew themselves up wrong and why they're not in heaven right now. It doesn't please God just by hurting yourself for God. Love must motivate and it's not just love, it's love for God. Even amongst Christianity, there are countries where Catholicism is rife and people at Easter time, they actually crucify themselves on crosses for the day. Don't worry, they have their friends there nearby who'll get them down at the end of the day so they can patch them up and they can go home pretty sore, but they'll be okay. God's not impressed by that, but they're not doing that out of love for God. They're doing that because they love themselves. They're trying to get in better with God, and it's very public. You don't crucify yourself in a closet. You crucify yourself so others can see you. These are all wrong motives. Without love, even giving is selfish. 
And all of this, Paul is saying all this to show the essentialness of love, as I've said. And I think it's clever how Paul's worked it in, that this is often what we're measured by, at least by our fellow man. By what we say, what we know, and what we do. Think about that, you know. What you say has no love behind it. People are going to see right through you. If what you know, if you're not motivated by love for others, how are you going to share with them? And if what you do has not got the love of God, that selfless, sacrificial love, then again, it's not going to have any eternal benefit. People see through us, God definitely does. Love is most certainly essential in all that we do. So, to grasp the gravity of how hard this is to actually achieve and how it is actually a lifelong apprenticeship, now let's look at point number two, the exercising of love, starting from verse four. Now, we cannot, I can't do more than just briefly list each of the ways listed in the next four verses, but this is the, um, these are several of the ways that truly selfless love is manifested. How do you measure up? Try to keep up. I know as I prepared this, I was simultaneously encouraged and then absolutely destroyed and then wrecked and then destroyed some more when I realized how far I still have to go to be someone who was truly loving the way that God loves me and expects me to love others, the way that Paul writes. So let's, let's fly through it. Charity suffers long and is kind. These two go hand in hand. Suffers long is referring to people you're suffering long, not against objects. You can't think, I'm getting better at my temper because I don't get so bad at traffic lights anymore. It's actually about people. It, it's, it condones people. And that's a lot harder to deal with because annoying people are hard to avoid. The aggravating people are hard to love. But you might think, well, it's okay. I tolerate them. I am pleasant to them. Well, the next part of the verse says, and that's not enough. There's charity suffers long and is kind. These go hand in hand. If you unpack the word kind, it's not just be nice to them, it's be wonderful to them. Don't just be pleasant to them, but shower them with kindness, shower them with Christian love. So don't just avoid a negative action, but pile a positive action on top of it. So there's no cutting corners. How do you measure up in that area? Charity envieth not, vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. Charity envieth not means do not be jealous of those who advance at your expense. And that's a difficult one, especially amongst Christians, because not only do we have this in the professional world where we have our secular jobs, but also in the, uh, the spiritual world, the, the ministerial uh, word for, uh, world, for want of a better term, where perhaps we're overlooked for a position or an area of responsibility where we think we would fit quite well and we're gifted. To not envy those who are ahead of us is a huge challenge, but Christian love will not allow that to happen. Agape love, vaunteth not itself, means we don't brag. We don't make others jealous. Like what we are not to be jealous of other people, nor are we to use actions and words that make others jealous of us to make us feel good. Um, I have a little preschooler right now who's really struggling with this concept, who for weeks... I, you know, look how good I am at this. Look at me. Look at this. And finally, I thought I have to put a stop to this. So I pulled him aside and said, Giuseppe, really, um, you have to let other people praise you. 
don't praise yourself. Self-praise is no praise, my little five-year-old. Let other people praise you. So he's gotten better at that. He now goes around saying, I'm good at this, aren't I, Mr. Luke? <laughs> so we're not quite there, but at least he want, he's, he realises that other people need to tell him that he's good. That's not agape love. It's not puffed up. Arrogance. Happy with what we ourselves have. 1 Corinthians 4, 7, we looked at, I'll paraphrase. Paul says, what have you got that you haven't received? I gave you everything. Why are you acting like it's your gift? Why you are responsible for manifesting this within yourself? Verse 5, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil. Behaveth itself unseemly, it's careless, overbearing, crude, gracious, self-righteous rudeness. Perhaps a problem for us more than we know. When the unsaved look at us, do they see a gracious person or do they see someone who they feel to be self-righteous? Perhaps this is a problem that we don't even realise. We're so busy trying to keep our standards and our testimony that we never connect with them. Not on a sinful level, of course, but I'm talking on a level where they feel loved and appreciated and that we are open to talk about things. That, I know, was a challenge for me and hopefully it will be one for you. Well, hopefully not. Hopefully that's not a problem for you. Seeketh not her own. There was a tombstone somewhere in England, apparently, that said, Here lies a miser who lived for himself and cared for nothing but gathering wealth. Now where he is and how he fares, nobody knows and nobody cares. Wouldn't that be tragic if that was on our tombstone? We had to follow the example of Jesus, who certainly did not seek his own, his own selfish ambition. He came for others. He served others, not his own personal advancement. Not easily provoked. This is the big one. A sudden outburst of emotion or action. This is what it's talking about. Our triggers, the things that get us all hot under the collar and get us all riled up. Agape love is only, only angered by things that anger God. And if we only got angry about things that only anger God, well, I'm pretty sure we'd probably 75% slash the things that we get angry at. Some people say, well, it's not bad. I get angry, but it's all over in a few minutes. Yes, well, so is a nuclear bomb. That's not my quote, but I thought it was good. And thinketh no evil. This is a hard one to see the best in others that's very difficult to do not keep track of the wrongs done we're naturally cynical for some reason as christians perhaps because we're so busy thinking about the things that we should and shouldn't do that we easily pick up on it in other people's lives just just a thought rejoiceth not in iniquity but rejoiceth in the truth no satisfaction in sin ours or others and this is probably something we will never master because we may i'm sure if we're really honest, we'll realise that we may not do that particular sin ourselves, but we get a tiny little bit of enjoyment out of it when we perhaps watch other people do it on the TV or we read about it. Just let's be brutally honest. And then, of course, to rejoice in the truth. We had to speak in the truth and walk in it. Paul rounds out the exercising of love in verses 7, saying, Bear all things, believe all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Love bears all things. This is a cover, support protect. 1 Peter 4, um, 8 says, no, I'm rushing through this, 
And above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. This is what it means to do, is to cover our wrongdoings. We're to not focus on them. Believe all things. This does not mean we need to be naive, but it does mean that we should not be suspicious or cynical. Our brethren must be innocent until proven guilty. We must have a spiritual trust within our churches, which is hard to manifest sometimes because we're all fallen sinners and we're prone to hurt each other. Love hopeth all things, which means we cannot give up on God and others. If our hope is weak, our love is weak. Where was the father of the prodigal son when the prodigal son came home? He was waiting for him. He didn't give up on his son. Just as God does not give up on us, we should not give up on our wayward brethren. And it endures all things. It's a military term for holding a vital position at any cost. This is what Stephen was doing. He was praying for and blessing the people who were stoning him, which just seems so foreign to us. But Stephen had it. Stephen knew what the right sort of type of love was. This is what truly selfless of how it's exercised. Are you still unsure as to why this lifelong apprenticeship? If, if anyone can stand up now and say, yes, I have all of these things down pat, I'm ready to go. Well, I hope that you enjoyed that lie that you just told and therefore you're rejoicing in iniquity and you're not there yet. So now we've seen, we've seen the... Um, We've seen the essentialness of love. We've seen the exercising of love. Let's look finally now at the eternality of love. Let's see why it's so important. And this love is indeed superior to anything the Corinthians had previously elevated. Whether this was a person, a personality, thinking all the way back to the start of the book, or a gift or a talent. The eternality of love. For something that takes a lifetime to struggle to master, it's no wonder that this is something that will last forever. It's probably a relief. You wouldn't want to get to the end of your life, only just get there and never have to worry about it again. Because all of eternity, love will be there because this love was there from the beginning. This is the love of God and this will remain after everything else has passed away. Paul starts off, he goes, charity doesn't fail, guys. And this is a statement that almost needs no explanation. So he just moves on from that. But he needs to spell out the things that the Corinthians were worshipping, that they were focusing on. He says, charity is going to last forever, guys, but the things that you're focusing on, your gifts and talents, they're not going to. And then he gives them a quick lesson on different reasons why they can't focus on the temporary things. Why? What's the first one? Well, the first one is that gifts fade. In verse 8, whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. These are all sign gifts, which we're not going to get into the why they faded and all that. But they faded. They're not around today. Don't be consumed by what you have now. It might not always be yours. There's no point hanging on to something that's only on loan to you to begin with. In verse 9, we learn that Gifts are finite. He moves on from tongues to something that Paul himself was gifted in. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. Gifts are finite. They don't last forever. They're not perfect. They're only in part. Greeks love things intellectual, so this would have resonated well with them. The prophecy that the other the apostles gave, the Old Testament prophets, 
the New Testament apostles. It was all compartmentalized. They never had the full picture. It wasn't the complete package. They could only prophesy what they'd been given. The Bible is written by a lot of different people. So whatever part you play in God's plan here on earth for you, it's a small part. Don't get wrapped up in yourself and what you're doing. Think that you're important, more important than what you are. To make it worth something, you must have Christian love. Verse 10, we learn that gifts finish, but then that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. Now, in context of prophecy as a temporary gift, that which is perfect includes the completed scriptures, the completed canon. It includes it, not going into everything that it's all about, um, but it includes that. Then that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. Gifts finish up. The perfect, the, the completed canon of scripture was on its way and there was no more need for prophecy because everything that God wanted us to know was right here, we've still got it today. And Paul was aware that his gift was finishing up and that was okay. Once you're, one day your gifts may not be needed but the love that God has put in your heart, and the love that you should be manifested will go on. The whole point of these verses, it's a maturing faith, it's focusing on God and us, not on ourselves and what makes us feel good, that elevates us and builds our status amongst believers and even the unsaved to a point. Gifts are formative. Verse 11, when I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. I spake as a child, he's focusing on tongues, I understood as a child, the gift of knowledge, I thought as a child, the gifts of wisdom and prophecy. But then he became a man and he put away these childish things. He's saying that our pettiness and childishness is what stops us from developing love for other people. Which to a point, yes, we can't help because we are sinners and we're never going to get it exactly right. But one day, all of our childishness and our sinful nature will be done away. And yet this agape love that we should be constantly trying to strive to emulate more will still remain because it's eternal. Our gifts are just um, tools to help us draw closer to the Lord and bless others. And then in verse 12, he's blessing, gifts are fallible. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. It's ironic that the word glass is used here, but they didn't have glass back then. The idea of a mirror but it's seen through a glass darkly because all they had back then was like polished metal. The best they could get to check if their hair was all right, if they had any bit of hummus stuck in their teeth, was a really blurry reflection from shiny metals, the best they could get. And he's saying that our gifts, you know, we look at, you know, what they do and it's just an imitation of what's to come. Even our best gifts, when used correctly in love for the Lord and others, will not be a true indication of what it's going to be like to be in God's presence without sin. Finally capable of loving as He has eternally loved us. It will be a wonderful, glorious day. Gifts are fallible. They're never going to get us there. They're just a, a sign of what's to come, an indication, a reflection. He's saying all these things about gifts to prove that what? The eternality of love, which was the main point, verse 13. And now abideth faith, 
hope, charity, these three, but the greatest of these is charity. Love is better than faith and hope because love, in verse 7, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So it's better. It already believes and hopes. God is love. And so for us to love this way, it is more important for us than any other virtues or gift we possess. Because this love is the love that links us to God and gives us, and links us, sorry, with His eternal self. That's what an author has said. Our love um, is something that should draw us to the Lord and should bless others. We should be manifesting this love in our hearts because if we are doing everything that we can without the love of God, we are ultimately achieving nothing. To conclude, tonight we've looked at the lifelong apprenticeship, something which we should be working at our entire life. We will never arrive. This lifelong apprenticeship is to use agape love in everything that we do. Agape love being selfless, sacrificial, unconditional love, the love of God. We were looking at how to masterfully serve this apprenticeship so that it's the motivation behind all that we do. And hopefully tonight I've showed you that this must be the motivation behind everything that we do. We look at the essentialness of love. What we say, know or do is useless without the agape love of God behind it. We looked at the exercising of love. Having all of these attributes that we looked at in those four verses is what God desires for us. It's not like a game of noughts and crosses where if you get three of them in a row, you get a prize. You're meant to fill the entire board. God wants all of these things in our life. And I don't know about you, but I know, studying this out, that I know that I'm so far away from where the Lord desires me to be. But He's not going to give up on me because His love for me is eternal. And finally, we looked at the eternality of love. His love love is eternal. There's no need to bicker and gaze inwards, be so self-absorbed. God's love is forever. So we are to spend our life loving God and others for His glory, regardless of the gifts and talents that you've got. The Corinthians constantly miss this point, so let's not be the same as individuals and as a church. Yes, it can get discouraging, realising how sinful we are, but Paul comforts us with the knowledge that we will be with Jesus one day and we can finally complete our apprenticeship. You may feel like you won't get there while here on earth. Well, you're not going to, but don't worry because the longer you strive to be more like Jesus, the more others are blessed. And so, in a sense, however far you get doesn't matter because we're all going to be glorified. But think of how many more people you can bless if you're concentrating on loving other people the way that God loves you. This is a life apprenticeship worth trying to complete. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your love. Thank you for how patient you are, how suffering, how you fill every single one of those attributes, those are. instances of how love is to be used lord help us to love you and love others lord help us not to be so caught up in what we how we speak what we know or what we do help us to be motivated by love in everything that we do and say and know let's pray that you would bless our time of prayer now and keep us safe as we travel on to our respective homes in your name amen